This is an ABC podcast. It was horrendous, just the shock, the horror, the disbelief. It's something you never really get over. How would you feel if someone posted sexual images of you online? In these socially distanced times, this kind of crime is going through the roof. A warning, this program covers some very disturbing ground. Of course, at that point I was like, oh my gosh, has he sent my photos to other websites? I really felt scared, as if I felt like I'm, I'm losing my face, I'm losing my reputation. You've probably heard the term revenge porn. Survivors and those who work with them say image-based sexual abuse is a better description. It better captures a broader range of ugly motivations and terrible consequences. And every time I apply for a job, obviously people now Google your name when you apply for a job. And then after that, they won't give me the job anymore. Hi, Damien Carrick with The Law Report. Since 2014, most jurisdictions in Australia have created specific offences around the non-consensual recording or distribution of images and also the threatening to distribute those images. The Victorian Sentencing Advisory Council has just released the first in-depth study into how these offences are handled in Victorian courts. It's the first report of its kind anywhere in Australia. The council's chair, Professor Ari Freiberg, says that over a four-year period, there were about 2,000 reports to police, which led to about 500 convictions. What was startling about our findings was that there was a very, very strong link link with family violence. And in fact, 58% of the cases occurred in the context of family violence. So it wasn't just somebody random, somebody that you may just know at taking photos or distributing them, it was in the context of family violence. In 25% of cases, the offender was also found guilty of breaching a pre-existing family violence intervention order or other family violence matters. That's right. And I don't think that was really well understood and it came as a surprise to us that there was such a close connection. And what sorts of penalties are imposed when there is a conviction? 27% were community correction orders. 22% were imprisonment and 19% fines. And the majority of prison cases were under six months. But it's often hard to tell what the appropriate sentence was for image-based sexual abuse because they were co-prosecuted with offences relating to breaches of family violence orders or family violence. So sometimes hard in the statistics to disaggregate the sentence imposed on each offence to reflect the very serious nature of some of these offences at the top end. You're the chair of the Sentencing Advisory Council in Victoria and this report just released looks at the Victorian situation. Victoria was sort of the first out of the block, wasn't it, back in, I think, 2014. We had sort of upskirting legislation before that, but then we had this specific legislation in 2014. Summary offences, they're not indictable offences. And summary offences, just explain that difference to me and what impact that has. Yes, the summary offences of those heard in the magistrate's court. And so the sentences that can be imposed 
are limited. In some other jurisdictions, it is an indictable offence which can be heard in front of a higher court and with a jury and where maximum penalties are greater. So we've suggested that some of the serious offences be turned into indictable offences. The main reason being that it increases the investigatory powers of the police in order to issue search warrants and in order to be able to get quicker and better access to some of the devices that are used in some jurisdictions, that's worked effectively, enabling police to get in there quickly and seize the devices before anything is thrown away or erased from the recordings. Ari Freiberg, what are, for you are the take-home messages from this report? One is that we believe that in serious cases, the sentences imposed are probably a bit low in comparison to the maximum penalties available. Uh, secondly, considering whether the summary offences could be changed to indictable offences and the need for greater community awareness of these offences. So that may increase the reporting rates to the police and may change our understanding of the prevalence and the seriousness of this new form of offending. Professor Ari Freiberg, Chair of the Victorian Sentencing Advisory Council. Diane, not her real name, is not surprised by the link between family violence and image-based sexual abuse. Some years ago, under older laws, her former partner pleaded guilty to using a telecommunications device to menace. He avoided any convictions. Oh, uh, I discovered that my partner had created fake profiles on adult websites those profiles contained explicit photos, some of which were of me, some which were not me, but all of the profiles had a very clear head and shoulder shot of me. Anyone who looked at any of the profiles would automatically think all the photos are me, whether or not they were. He didn't use my name. He used my girlfriend's name. But yes, he was clicking around and seeing the interactions between him and the other members of this site. It was clear he was pretending to be me. What do you think his motivation was? I would suggest that every time he was angry with me, which was often, (laughs) it was a form of punishment for me. Would you say that your partner was abusive or controlling? Absolutely. He was emotionally, financially abusive. He was monitoring me and stalking me. It was definitely an element of his family violence, the image-based abuse, yeah. Like when there were times he snapped photos of me at inappropriate times. He did not ask for my consent. But he literally, we were in the middle of sex once and he had his, I didn't know, but he actually had his camera snapped of us in the middle of having sex. And I just froze because of the fear of him. And if I had spoken up, yeah, he'd go into this rage and, yeah, so I didn't I didn't challenge him. And what impact has this had on your life? Oh, it's caused so much distress and embarrassment and it destroys your trust in people. Is it also the unknown of not knowing who has accessed those images? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. You know, you just realise even when technically a website takes your photos down, you don't know who's received those photos. The receiving person can screenshot, they can cut and paste and save themselves, you know. Um, You don't know if one day your children are going to stumble across them. 
yeah, it's just so damaging. Kathleen Simpson from Gold Coast law firm DV Lawyer says many of her clients go to court seeking orders to prevent or stop the publication of images or comments. They can apply for a protection order uh, in the domestic violence courts. So like an intervention order or an apprehended violence order to kind of stay away from somebody or to refrain from doing a number of other measures and one of them can be distributing or threatening to distribute this material. Yes, and in Queensland, an application for a protection order can be filed where orders can be sought to prohibit the using of internet or any other communication device, including social networking sites, to communicate with or publish pictures or make adverse comments concerning the aggrieved. That order is a common order sought in these types of cases. And once that order has been made and served on the respondent, if there is a breach of that order, then um, leads into a criminal offence and possibly a criminal record. Do you try and secure those kinds of orders often and and do people often breach those kind of orders? Uh, Not often where there's a breach. Once the order is is in place, from my experience with, with running these cases, those orders actually do work for a majority of cases. In some cases, though, I've had clients that the material hasn't been removed They've had to go directly to the social networking sites uh, to report the uh, intimate images and that they did not consent to those images being published. And in your experience, are those social media sites receptive and do they act quickly in response to these sorts of concerns and complaints? Some do, some don't. One of Kathleen Simpson's clients is Jo, not her real name. Her former partner posted images on a website. He put some photos there that was not my body and it was basically that my face and I was like prostituting something. I really try not to see the website because it's just painful for me, you know. Was, was your lawyer Kathleen Simpson able to do anything for you? He did contact the police. They said they can't do anything because of the reason it's not in Australia, the host and the person. And every time I apply for a job, obviously people now Google your name when you apply for a job. And then after that, they won't give me the job anymore. Also, I tried to find a relationship after that. And my relationship was okay until I give my real name. And my relationship never worked. You have children as well. Yeah, I have a daughter, about two two years, three years ago, she came home crying because people Google each other name. You know, her name is linked to that file. So she came home, you know, as a kid crying and confused. She's too young to understand. That hurts me a lot. Because of this, I changed my real name. So you've actually changed your real name to escape the kind of history which has been created about you by your former partner. Yes, and this is the biological father of my own child. And even if I change my real name, every real name has an history of the past because some of my educational background and all of those certificates. Now I have to change one by one, and I can't, the past documents, I cannot change. Image-based sexual abuse is not confined to domestic violence. Associate Professor Asha Flynn is a criminologist based at Monash University. In February, she and her co-authors released the findings of a survey of 6,000 people across 
Australia, New Zealand and the UK? So we found that overall one in three of the people that we surveyed had been a victim of at least one form of image-based sexual abuse and one in six of the people that we surveyed had themselves engaged in perpetration of image-based sexual abuse. And these rates were the same, so they were consistent across Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom. Can you tell me what kind of characteristics or attributes make you more likely to be a victim of this kind of abuse? Young people in their 20s and 30s were among the most likely to be victims and young men in these same age groups were the most likely to be perpetrators. We found that sexuality diverse groups experienced higher rates of victimisation, so this would be among the, the lesbian, gay, bisexual queer intersex community. Ethnically diverse groups experienced higher victimisation rates, and this included uh, in terms of Indigenous Australians, Maori participants, and men's and women's victimisation. We found similar rates in terms of experiencing victimisation, but the nature and context of the way that they were experiencing that abuse differed quite significantly. So, for example, we found that women were much more likely to experience image-based sexual abuse at the hands of an intimate partner or in the context of a, a an ongoing series of domestic or, and family violence. So you're telling me that it's not gendered in the sense that there are just as many men who complain about this as women? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so look, we did find that men and women reported experiencing the abuse at a similar rate, but the main difference we found was that the ways that they experienced that abuse abuse was quite different. So, for example, we had a large number of males who reported experiencing the abuse, but the way they experienced it was to find it funny or to laugh it off. Whereas for women, there was a, a much higher portion who felt fearful for their safety and experienced psychological distress and harm as a result of those images being shared or being captured. We found that women in particular uh, experienced a, a higher level of harassment alongside the images being shared or taken. In our survey, we found that it was also quite common for people to be experiencing it outside of a domestic or family violence context. So they were also experiencing it by friends, you know, non-intimate partners, but perhaps someone that they might have met briefly on a dating app or might have engaged in just one or two dates with and then something has occurred. We also found that it was happening for reasons of people wanting to impress their friends or to trade the images. So the motivations were not always solely around a control or a domestic and family violence context, but I think it's understandable that the types of cases that are being reported to the police and actually getting beyond the police and making it to the courts are ones where there's a very uh, serious ongoing form of negative behaviour against the person. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I suppose it isn't surprising that with the world congregating online and doing everything from working, learning, entertaining, connecting, but also sharing digital intimacy, that we've seen a huge spike in image-based abuse over the COVID period. So overall, between March and August, we saw a 245% increase in image-based abuse 
over the Easter long weekend alone, we saw a 600% increase, and that was largely owing to a broad sextortion scam that was launched um, around that time. Julie Inman-Grant is Australia's e-safety commissioner. So what we did when I commenced in January 2017 is we did a tremendous amount of research and work to build um, what we call an image-based abuse portal so that we could take reports from members of the public and take down intimate images and videos almost exclusively from overseas sites. We have about an 85% success rate in doing so. We were given additional civil penalties in September 2018 and have started to test those new powers since that time. Um, So now over the life of that three-year scheme, we've helped about 5,000 Australians have their intimate material removed online. And I guess I'd also say that with some of the investigations, some of the reports we get, we're talking about three or 400 images or videos, often on multiple platforms. We often see that determined predators, if they're intending to menace, to hurt, to cause offense, they will place these images and videos on as many different platforms as they can to achieve the optimal level of humiliation. As I understand, under this civil penalties scheme, you can issue warnings. You also have the power to issue fines. Tell me, what have you done so far since the scheme commenced? That is right. We have these remedial um, graduated steps, right? We can issue removal notices. We've issued nine removal notices. We can also issue formal warnings or informal warnings. We've issued about seven formal warnings and nine informal warnings. To get to the fining, that's when we fail in terms of achieving the removal notices. And so far, we've been successful. That also requires us going to court. And if there's anything that we've learned in dealing with thousands of victims, it's that sometimes they just want the content to be taken down. They don't want to to go into formal court proceedings because it's expensive, it's time-consuming, requires them often to go to court and forces them to kind of relive that trauma of having those images or videos shown in a court of law. Do you get good cooperation from the social media platforms? We do get good results from the the responsible social media platforms. We have about an 85% success rate. In almost every case, it's an overseas hosted site. Where we really have challenges are with what we call rogue porn sites that are set up for the purposes of humiliating mostly women, sometimes um, a a broader spectrum of people. You mentioned there about the importance of resources. Uh, I understand that the eSafety Commission uh, received an extra $10 million at the end of June uh, this year. How many investigators do you have devoted to image-based sexual abuse? We had about five, and um, just as of last week, using the surge funding, we've now doubled the number of investigators. Um, I'd say that image-based abuse is the fastest-growing abuse type in terms of um, having people coming to the e-safety office and reporting and seeking support. In fact, we found that we were getting 
a number of desperate pleas, really, and requests for assistance from people overseas because we're the only government-run legislated regulatory scheme that does remove this kind of content from the internet. So, you know, Australians are fortunate to be able to have this government service to call upon when no one else in the world does. E-Safety Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant, who says that only 5% of those who access the e-safety portal report that their abuse relates to an ongoing domestic violence relationship. Sina is not sure if a former partner recorded images without his consent. Yes, so it was about a year ago that I had a fallout with someone that I was dating for a very short period of time. And afterwards, I noticed that there were fake Grindr profiles of me being created. Grindr is the gay men's dating app. Also, even a fake Tinder profile. So that meant that a fake Facebook profile also existed. And furthermore, like it was to the point that the person was advertising an OnlyFans profile. It's a sort of a, a pay-to-enter sort yeah, of site. Yeah, it's an amateur porn website that people charge for the content. And uh, none of them belong to me. And also what the person did was that the profiles had blocked me, so I couldn't see what's actually happening on those profiles. Interesting was that although like we had uh, blocked a person, but you know how the algorithm works. So that if that profile keeps following a few of my followers, then the algorithm suggests to the person the rest of my followers. The algorithm was allowing the person to discover more of people in my social media circle. And these profiles and the, the OnlyFans site, do they contain images or videos of you which, which had sexual content? So it, it was insinuating that if you pay and if you get in, there will be like uh, nude photos or videos over there. I never got to realize what was the content that was actually there. But the idea that a kind of a porn content of mine exists uh, online, that was, I think, the whole deal. Like the person was creating Instagram stories uh, saying like, oh, if you want to see my nudes, just slide into my DMs, which means direct message, like direct message me and I will send back stuff to you. You know, I really didn't want to discover that if my friends got back to me and they asked me like what's happening, I just asked them to block and report the person. I wasn't encouraging people to investigate and see what the person actually has on me. So you don't know if there is actually any content there, but it's a form of abuse because it's trying to threaten you and intimidate you and take away your control. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, it's not actually an endorsed area of to having uh, your nudes around. Uh, it's not going to really assist you in your social life or in professional life. It really didn't serve my mental health when it was happening. I really felt scared, as if I felt like I'm, I'm losing my face, I'm losing my reputation. Were you able to take any steps to remove this material from online? Yes, I did report it and my friends reported it as well. I think it took like two days until the profile was removed. With the, with the speed of things now in social media world and platforms, the person can get in touch with people around you and send a message to everyone or to some just in a matter of 30 minutes. And to take down those profiles would definitely take more than 30 minutes. Sina. 
Recent law graduate Noelle Martin was the 2019 Young West Australian of the Year. For many years, she's advocated for more effective responses to image-based sexual abuse. My experience has taken place, I guess, over a number of years. It started off with sexual predators somewhere around the world taking images of me from social media and altering them into pornography and distributing the images online without my consent. Those images proliferated across the internet. The images would often be accompanied by very horrific and graphic commentary about me and that had as well identifiable information about me too on these sites that began a, um, I guess, a long fight trying to take the material down and when that wasn't working, I decided to speak out. Then the perpetrators went ahead and created fake pornographic videos of me. So they're now that's kind of the the essence of what happened. So essentially these were deep fakes, both uh, images and then subsequently videos. Yes, it has absolutely changed my life. I mean, it's it almost destroyed it. And I think, you know, for a lot of the time that it did happen, especially in the beginning, there wasn't any form of justice available and there wasn't much support or help. Even though I'm I'm 26 now and this has happened since I was 18, I feel like I'm still dealing with the harms and the consequences of what happened, um, particularly in employability and sometimes just like the emotional toll that it's taken. And so, yeah, to, to this day, I'm still feeling the fallout of what's happened. At the time, there were no specific laws where you lived, which I think was in New South Wales. You were involved in the campaign to create specific offences around all this kind of abuse. How well have those laws worked? I think that it's really great that we um, in Australia have laws that deal with this, specific laws. I think that as a starting point, how effective they are, I think it depends on the nature of the abuse happening. So for someone like me that I don't know who the perpetrator is, it's very hard to get some sort of accountability because the internet is huge and people can target you halfway around the world. That makes it a lot more difficult for the laws to be effective. You know, are they effective? In some ways, yes. And in some ways, there's still a long way to go. You know, I think there's a lot of victim-blaming attitudes um, and a lot of shame attitudes towards particularly women who might take images in the first place or there's not much understanding of how horrific this abuse is. And so when we get a greater level of awareness, I hope that will translate into the accountability legally that our system deals with for this kind of abuse. I think maybe harsher penalties. We do need deterrence. We've actually done perpetrator studies where we've tried to understand the motivations of why people are on sharing intimate images. And one of the responses back we got from those who do on share intimate images is that, that 
it's become normalized. People do it all the time. You can do it with relative impunity. Very few cases of people being arrested or reaching significant fines. So we won't regulate or arrest our way out of this problem, but having more consistent um, and harsher sentencing and more indications that um, organizations like ours and law enforcement is willing to, to take strong action, I think is an important deterrence to this kind of behaviour over time. E-Safety Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant and before her, Noel Martin, the 2019 Young Western Australian of the Year. Now, if this program has raised any issues for you, you can find information and support at esafety.gov.au. That's the Law Report. Big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and also to sound engineer this week, Matthew Sigley. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.